0: There you got my Just ask a woman. You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. One of the most common questions I receive from women is, "How can I take action?" So many women are concerned about the legislation and ideology being embraced by politicians, the media, and institutions, yet feel helpless to make a difference. A new book. Practical Politics for Bold Women, is for women's rights campaigners who want to be heard, but may not be sure where to start. I spoke with the author and a women's rights campaigner herself, Natasha Chart, about the book and how women can take action effectively.
1: First of all, thanks for talking with me. I'm really uh, grateful for your time and your work.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Megan. I really appreciate it.
1: Tell me a little bit about your background in feminist organizing.
2: So, uh <laughs> my background in feminist organizing um like officially probably started uh when I was working at an organization that used to be called RH Reality Check and is now now called we- Rewire and I uh I got fired and blacklisted from there for opposing trans-identified males hassling lesbians and for (laughs) objecting to people trying to pass off um, support for legalized prostitution as feminism. So that was unpopular. And in those (laughs) circles, I, uh, I was apparently accused in many venues, according to Friends, of being actually dangerous. And so then I um, I started working with radical feminists who agreed with me on this. Um, I helped uh, referee the papers for the founding of what's still, I think, the only officially incorporated feminist radical feminist nonprofit in the U.S. Uh, and this summer, I uh, after I left there, I wrote a book called. Practical Politics for Bold Women, Proven Methods to Organize and Be Heard, because I realized that, you know, in the years since, you know, and we had incorporated in, I think it was 2016, um, there weren't really any other organizations getting started. There were like a few little volunteer efforts here and there, but everyone seemed to have shied away from actually forming a nonprofit or, you know, any other sort of official organization. And one of the things that I argue is that forming an organization, any kind of legal business entity that has a bank account that's not a personal bank account, and this is key, um, it's boring, but it's key. It creates, it creates, you know, an an atmosphere of authority and stability. You're agreeing to, you know, operate under certain rules. And so it kind of supercharges organizing efforts. You know, like the ACLU in the US has, you know, they've got their national chapter and then they've got a chapter in all fifty states in Puerto Rico. And they are just one of the organizations that is lobbying through all of those chapters all over the US to legalize um, prostitution and to erase women in the law in the name of gender identity. And, you know, as many people know, there are hundreds of other organizations just in the US doing the same thing. And mm-hmm. that sort of institutional platform, especially locally distributed it's so important, it's so valuable, and we have nothing comparable.
1: Why do you think it is that we
2: have nothing comparable? Well, for one thing, there's there's the issue of professionalization. I think this is a big one, which most movements have, you know, most political movements have some... Reasonable percentage of professional political nonprofit staff who are willing to like start up new projects. And around this issue, most of the people who would fall under that description have elected to stay quiet and keep their jobs in liberal and progressive organizing or their you know, they're just kind of quietly doing something else and hoping to stay out of the radar. And I think that the, you know, it's alarming what gender activists will say to us online and, you know, the blacklisting campaigns. And I've, you know, I've had my details shared. I've had threatening, harassing phone calls made. Um, you know, we, we've we had our events protested and otherwise targeted for harassment but but it's not i don't know I, I think people to some extent worry about it a little bit more than is reasonable than then it's is likely to for it to be a problem mm-hmm. and I think it's been blown up to be bigger than it was. And I also think that, like, if there were even five or ten official radical feminist nonprofits, it would start building a momentum of its own. Because, you know, one thing that you see, it's like they can sustain, you know, a Twitter hashtag mob or a doxing effort here or there or something like that, but they can't. The, the capacity of their networks to organize for these sorts of cancellation parties, it sort of starts testing its limit at about two or three incidents at a time. That's my observation anyway. It's just, you know,
1: Yeah, I mean I think that I mean I like you have been subject to a ton of threats and um, and to doxing, actual doxing, not what people think is doxing, like my address and personal info <laughs> was posted online. And, uh, and you know, it, it is scary, but I think that what people are actually afraid of is not so much the threats of violence and so on and so forth. I think it's the social ostracization. And, of course, you know, people are worried about losing their jobs and things like that because those yeah. things do happen. Um, but... I, like you say, if there were more organizations, um, if we were doing more organizing around this issue of women's sex-based rights, I think that that would provide a better foundation um, for women to feel safe to start doing work around this. But, I mean, I think it's interesting that you say that it's it's blown out of proportion um, because... I've never heard anybody say that, but I think that you might be right because in my experience, I mean, the easiest way to get past the fear of talking around this issue is just to start talking about it. <laughs> like it's scarier to to hide in silence than to just come out and say, this is what I think and go through the process of losing your friends or people being mad at you or people yelling at you on the internet and what have you and then move forward with with actual
2: organizing oh for sure for sure and you know it's scary to be broken lonely (laughs) you know that's not that's that's not nothing that's i you know and especially in the u.s when our health care is often tied to a job Mm. you know that can be i've definitely had people say oh well you know I wouldn't be able to afford like this medicine I need or someone in my family their child maybe would not be able to afford their treatment and that you know that's real but it's also not like if you pop up and say I mean people people talk about it sometimes as though if you pop up on the internet under your own name and say oh well I don't believe that human beings can change sex, like, you know, a picket line will form outside your house the next day. Right? <laughs> and it's not like that. <laughs> I yeah, mean,
1: it's just, I mean, I, a lot of it is, I mean, people are scared, for, scared of conflict and scared to disagree and, and those yeah. kinds of things. But I think that you're right. I think there's ways to be strategic around that. And, you know, one of the best ways to be strategic around this issue is, of course, to to organize and to start lobbying um, politicians yeah. in particular. So I I think one of the most common questions that I get, especially from young women, but also, you know, from all sorts of women is like, I they'll say they'll email me or they'll talk to me after an event and they'll say I'm really upset about this I'm really concerned I'm really angry but I don't know what to do you know how do I make a difference so how does one start organizing I mean how do how how would a woman go about finding others to start organizing with or do you think she should just kind of start on her own
2: well when they shut down gender critical Reddit um there were last i heard about 50,000 women on that platform and so there's a there's things that this tells us one is that you know if you had that many people in organizations you know if there had been say if that had represented like 10 organizations um with like 5,000 people on their list. I think the bath works out right there. Um, That would have been like 10 organizations worth of pretty decent, like if those had all been state organizations, that's a pretty decent level of response. And if you have an organization, you can come up with some kind of platform that can't be taken away from you. For instance... An email list. If you're an organization, you can get you know business banking, business email, bulk email. So you can have your own email list. You can reach your supporters whether or not Reddit will let you talk to each other. Even if Facebook bans every last one of you, even if Twitter won't let you have an account, you can you can own your own contact with your members um so i would say you know and like organizing is at a fundamental level is just getting more than one person to agree on a goal and work work towards it together so if you have ever you know like been in a group of friends and you were all trying to decide what to do for dinner and it was this long dithery discussion that made you just want to tear your hair out and you helped everybody figure out okay we're going to go to this place and we're going to go now you can understand the basic principles of how to how to organize people. You pick a goal, you get people enrolled into carrying it out, and you start executing, and you start moving towards it. And, hey, maybe you show up and the restaurant's closed and you have to go next door, but you still, you know, you had a plan and you started working towards it, and you can adjust as you get new information. But find one or two other people and just start setting goals start working towards those goals hang out your shingle especially as a as a group build it into an organization and every step along the way of doing that every step leads to the kind of building networking power that can lead eventually to success
1: as as you know <laughs> Um, one of the biggest challenges with feminist organizing is that, you know, like common goals is an issue. You would think that, you know, radical feminism is a pretty marginal political movement as far as political movements go. You know, I don't actually think there are a lot of radical feminists in the world. Um, but, uh, you know, you would think that there would be common goals within such a small and specific political group, if you want to call it that, or ideology or whatever. Um, But in any case, you'd think that there would be, it would be easy to find common cause with other radical feminists. And yet, you know, most of these groups really do fall apart on account of infighting and political differences. Do you think this is something that's avoidable or inevitable? Or do you have any uh, ways to or, is uh, you know, suggestions in terms of avoiding your group falling apart due to due to this infighting that seems pretty constant?
2: Well, first of all, I think that a lot of radical feminist organizing and this, this partly comes down to the issue of there not being much in the way of like professional organizing in it because the main difference is just that understanding what politics is and that it's not arguments and essay contests. That's like a very academic thing. Politics is about getting groups of people and money and all kinds of resources organized towards the end of achieving meaningful political goals and a meaningful political goal isn't like you know let's argue for like two weeks about whether or not you can be a feminist if you're not a vegan that's that's not a political goal really a political goal is look there's this policy um, they're gonna pass it at the State House None of us like it. We have to go find five people to show up and testify. That's a political goal. And when you organize your work around goals like that, it's it has its own momentum. It has its own appeal. You you can start accomplishing things. You can start every step you take along the path, you can see a way again to to take the next step. And when you start doing that, you can start achieving even small wins, the, and then you want to do more of it. And then that, you know, it brings the satisfaction that you think winning an argument, except you never win an argument, <laughs> that you think winning an argument will get you. It, it, it begins to provide its own reward, and you learn through doing it. But the thing is, you don't need, you know, if there's like 5,000 people in a Facebook group and there's some huge, vicious argument going down, guaranteed most of the people are not participating in it. Mm -hmm. Most people are either tuned out or they haven't gotten a notification from this group in like a year or they're just looking at that fight being like, man, I've got 50 things I'd rather do today than be part of that buzzsaw. Um, you don't need 5,000 people to agree with you to start working towards measurable, achievable political goals. You need, like, three or five. You need, like, some single-digit number of people that you have working together on sensible, reasonable goals can start, you know, achieving small wins and building supporter lists, and then you don't need to win an argument with 5,000 people. It's a, it's a much more defined and achievable task, actually, and it's a million times more effective than having arguments on social media.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important point because I think that people do sometimes think that social media is the whole world and they see these fights happening online or they're engaging in these fights online and they think, you know, everyone... They think everyone sees it to start, which isn't true, but, you know, that people, mm-hmm. you know, they feel like everyone's against them maybe because they're they're being attacked online. And the reality is that most people just aren't speaking up or participating. Um, and some people <laughs> who tend to be... You know not not the nicest people tend to also be like the loudest people in those kinds of situations um so I think that's a really important reminder. I mean, I always tell women you know organize in real life, obviously, we have to do certain things online. social media is a really useful tool, or it can be. Um, You know, we don't all live in the same place, so we're going to end up having to do things on Skype or Zoom or things like that. But, But if you can, I do, I always suggest finding women, you know, like in your town or in your city to try to get together with and organize. What do you think about that online versus real life organizing thing?
2: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, you need... The online component, to some extent, you know, it's a good idea to have a website, to have a social media presence for a group, even if it's just a little volunteer group that you have, so people know you're there, so people can kind of just find you. Because, you know, there is some of that that happens, and, you know, I'll even say I'm I'm certainly no, like, total saint when it comes to online arguments, as you know. I've definitely... I've definitely been in some flame wars here and there in my time and sometimes you know you might feel like hey I really need to speak up about this um, but still it the important thing is keeping it in perspective is if you have if you have any real-life offline contacts with people phone calls zoom calls in person meetings anything That's keeping you in perspective with, hey, there's a whole world outside social media. There are millions of people who haven't even logged into Twitter today and probably never will. And they don't care. And they never will. And you can talk to plenty of those people. But even if you are, you know, online, if you have two people who are hassling you and you know you have like an email list of 2,000 people who support you. And you know, you know, well, our organization has hundreds of donors who love our work. Two people arguing with you doesn't feel like the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Or if you're a website, you know, if you run your own website and you're looking at your traffic figures Mm -hmm. and there's somebody going after each other in the comments or whatever, and you know, yeah, only 2% of the people who visit even ever leave a comment Two people having an argument is not the end of the world. This isn't like representative of everybody's opinion. You know, it, it's about maintaining perspective and offline real life relationships are good for maintaining perspective and also for actually getting things done. They're the best for that. In your, in your book,
1: you wrote that um, political engagement isn't just a right but a duty. Um, but, you know, at the same time, a lot of people are really wrapped up in their own lives and their struggles, or, you know, uh, maybe they're struggling to survive, or maybe they're just very self involved. Um, <laughs> there's lots of different reasons why people aren't politically engaged. Um, do you think it's realistic to expect everyone to be politically engaged?
2: I think, you know, Between the extremes of you are reading political news and contacting a political figure or showing up at like your city hall every day and the other extreme of you don't even know who the, you know, president of your country is, there's a lot of gray area. I think that people could do, if we want to have a representative government if we want to have representative liberal democracies and we want those to function well people have to show up to them and you know even people who do consider themselves politically engaged how often is that engagement well i read a bunch of stories and maybe complained a little bit online versus i called my representative Versus I talked with somebody else and we have a plan about what to do with this. So we could be doing slightly more. I think even doing just a few degrees more worth of civic engagement and citizen oversight of our governments would really help. And where we are engaged, being a little more strategic about it. I think what happened with the gender identity for issue, for instance, is that they took over quietly behind the scenes. And you can find somewhere on YouTube, there's a video of Masson Davis, who's a, an FTM, talking about this. All of these institutions in the shadows that kind of people don't care about and they don't notice too much. Like there was that that guy, Amelia DeCodden, who got rid of the the sex parity representation rule in New York State, you know, how, how well attended are New York State Party Democratic meetings? I bet not very well. I've never gone to one. You know, I'm here talking about this in terms of engagement. I, I haven't gone to one of those state party meetings. And, you know, I think... I think actually, democracy is kind of understaffed, that not enough people show up to it and have interest. And so, when someone comes along with kind of a terrible idea, but they have a really good organizing strategy, there's not necessarily a lot of break on that. You know, I think a lot of things slide under the radar that are just kind of ridiculous or stupid or objectionable and this is hardly the first policy issue where something like that has happened where you know you, it gets public airing and you know past like the tiny number of people to whom it made sense originally and people will be like wait what are, what were you doing why did you think this made sense and it's like you know we there needs to be more public oversight of of government and the institutions that that run our lives. And there isn't, you know, if the public us does not show up to provide that, we're just not going to get it.
1: A lot of organizations obviously struggle with money, um, especially feminist organizations, you know, even, you know, I've wanted to put on events and things like that. And I just don't have the capacity to do fundraising um in order to to manage that kind of thing and most of us don't we're not you know well off people we don't you know I don't I can't put up my own money most of the women that I know can't either um we aren't we aren't the wealthy ones we need the wealthy donors and I don't know that we really have them <laughs> but uh what do you recommend in terms of fundraising and, and and getting money so that you can maintain your organization, maintain your organizing um, and do things like put on events. if, If that's something that you desire to do. Right.
2: Well, one of the main issues, and this is why, you know, I started talking about like getting like an official organization or a business, some kind of incorporated entity in business banking, and starting to build an email list is because that's where eventually you start building structures through which money can come and people will trust it. You know, like most most of these efforts are organized through like volunteer networks, somebody puts up a GoFundMe or something like that, and it's a personal account. I've almost never seen one of those things happen where people weren't complaining about, well, where did the money go for this, that, or the other thing in ways that they tend not to ask if it's like, you know, put on by, say, a registered nonprofit or a business where, you know, and there were certain accounting rules that they had to follow, right? Mm. They had to at least do some certain things to, to understand that there, there was a, there was an ethic, there were rules to how the funds were handled. And I didn't just give this to somebody that they're going to go spend on, you know, going down to the, going down to the liquor store or whatnot, right. Mm -hmm. Just to (laughs) throw something out. It's like, isn't that the, you know, the usual reason why, why people say, no, don't give money to panhandlers, but kind of like when you're putting out a personal when you've only got personal structures personal banking and finance to deal with it's kind of like panhandling on the internet and that kind of thing tends not to i mean for one thing people who are like savvy donors what does that look like to you does that look like a stable endeavor that people are really going to commit to like you're going to support this and years later you're going to be proud of something that you built or you're going to give money for this one-time effort this person might even do this thing that they said but then they're you know they're going to get some other job they're going to get some other interest they're going to go away and whatever was built was lost if you contribute to an organization There's institutional longevity that's somewhat presumed, especially if the organization has been around a little while. Um, There's also institutional structures created that make it easier for, you know, a wealthy donor to give. Like for instance, donors tend to, they tend to want, like in the US, I don't know anywhere else, uh, you know, how this works exactly but there's tax deductions for donations to c threes. So a donor can get a tax break by, you know, passing along assets to a registered 501 C three charity. They cannot get that tax break for, you know, giving money to your tiny event fund. And so they aren't going to do it. So this is another reason why you have, to, you have to put in the effort to create the organizational structure. And it's possible to do an all-virtual office policy nonprofit that you could start for maybe between like one and $3,000 for like the total startup cost for a year. And if you got a few friends together, that's, that's not an insane amount of money to be thinking about for starting an organization. And then, then other things are possible that are not possible if you just get together with a group of your buddies and throw up a GoFundMe on the internet and ask people to trust, just trust that you personally are going to, to use it for what you said you were going to use it for.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, one of the issues that I've done work around, you've done work around, a lot of the women that we know have done work around, of course, is gender identity legislation and protecting women's sex-based rights. Um, you know, it's it's hard to get through to people who've already decided, um, and that means it's hard to get through to people like Democrats, uh, le- the left, you know, left-wing or progressive politicians um, who who tend to dominate politics in Canada in any case, and, you know, it's really frustrating. In, in Canada, those kinds of people often won't even talk to us. So, you know, I think it's really important to lobby politicians and policymakers. But if you can't even get a meeting or, you know, people, the, the people in charge simply won't listen to you, it is tough to make a difference. I wonder if you've had any success in that area. And and if so, you know, how did you do that? How have you managed to get through to people on this issue of, you know, why women's sex-based rights matter, what what the potential harms of gender identity legislation and policy are, et cetera.
2: Well, to some extent, and if people have a very strong partisan attachment to a left-leaning party that's like hook, line, and sinker for gender identity, this is not a comforting answer, but it's to some extent you have to talk to anybody who will talk to you. Um, You know, Obviously not like crazy, violent, evil people or whatever, but but to people who are serving elected representatives, um, you should consider taking a meeting with someone of a party that you don't necessarily approve of and see if you can come to a meeting of the minds on this. Another thing that I found effective... Um, and that I was told was privately, you know, widely shared with legislators. Um, I've been part over the last year and a bit, in one way or another, commissioning about $100,000 worth of public opinion polls in the U.S., and every single one of those polls showed that, you know, a majority of people in the U.S. approve in a A vague sort of way of our policy proposal called the Equality Act, which would be like a big women's and LGBTQ WTF rights bill. So it erases sex in favor of gender identity, and it's supposed to be about rights for women, but essentially makes it so the law can't even recognize that women exist. And people generally support that policy, probably because, you know, they want to be nice, and they think about it in terms of, well, I don't want anyone discriminated against in housing and employment. And I haven't actually met anyone, you know, who opposes gender identity policy who doesn't, you know, think that that's a good place to start from, that like, we shouldn't just be mean to people or something, or drive them out of work or housing because they make a gender identity claim. I wish people in the gender identity activist camp were that broad-minded about radical feminists, but alas. But when you dig down into asking them, well, do you think that, you know, men who've committed DV or sex offenses should be housed in women's prisons? No, people don't like that idea. Do you think that, you know, males should be allowed to compete in girls and women's sports? People don't like that idea. Mm-hmm. These policies, like what they actually do, are not popular. They don't have majority support. And if you can get, like the, the organizations that support gender identity policies in the U.S., have email lists and supporter lists in various forms of millions of people. And even if we had like 50 new Radfem organizations spring up in the next three months, we are not gonna have that many people. But we can point to public opinion research and say, hey, I can prove that more than half of the likely voters in the US agree with me on this issue. I can show you right here. And with a a high degree of certainty, this means many tens of millions of people. We should have like 270 seats worth, roughly, of congressional representation for gender critical opinions on these policies based on the number of likely voters who agree with us, but we don't. But we can prove, and this is another way of, if you can't directly organize people if you can come up with some kind of way to fund public opinion research, every country they've tried that in, they have proved that these policies are unpopular. Mm -hmm. This is like
1: super important information. These are really useful tips. I think that it's like these kinds of conversations are really necessary in, in feminism in particular. For radical feminists, I think we've struggled with organizing and getting through to to policymakers and to the public for a really long time. So I really appreciate you writing this book and and talking with me about all this. And um, I hope that lots of people will read your book and and start organizing throughout the U.S. and and in other places in Canada as well. Of course, how can people get your book?
2: Um, can can they buy it online? Well, if you are in the U.S., you can buy a print copy at natashachart.com, and up until I think this weekend, it was available on Kindle. But it seems to have been taken off Kindle as of today, because I tried to pass the link to somebody, so my my book's been removed from Kindle. But I believe it's available on some other ebook services. Okay, well that's good and bad. <laughs> I
1: guess I shouldn't be too surprised but it's very frustrating but I at least I'm glad that people can buy it via your website that's awesome. Um thanks again for talking with me it was great to speak with you um and yeah I, I kind of I hope we can get the word out in terms of the work that you're doing and and these tips to as many women as possible.
2: Likewise thank you so much Megan. Okay. Have a great evening. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: You just heard an interview with Natasha Chart, president of Chart Consulting and author of Practical Politics for Bold Women. To learn more about her work and to purchase the book, visit natashachart.com. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.